talking about a turkey. I'm sure you'd rather be dealing with somebody who knows what she's doing. A professional chef, Martha Stewart, my mother. Well, too bad, turkey, because you're stuck with me. And cooking ain't exactly my forte. If I'm a grown woman, turkey, with children, I should know how to make a friggin' turkey. So, No more Sunday night dinners at Aunt Linda's. Mm -mm. Tonight, family dinner is here at my house. Step one, remove the turkey neck and giblets. What are giblets? Answer me, turkey. Okay, okay. Drastic times call for drastic measures. Hey, Mom, are you okay? What's going on? Everything's fine. No, no, no emergency. Actually, I am, I'm cooking dinner. And I, <laughs> no, just easy, you know, I'm just um, going to make a turkey. Okay, Mom, please relax. This is why I'm calling you. Okay, we both know I don't know how to make a turkey, but I know you know how to make a turkey. So if you could just walk me through it. Yes, all the way from Florida. That would be incredibly helpful. Okay, thank you. Yes. Yes, I have a turkey. Yes, it is in a pan. Okay, preheat the oven to 350. Okay, I can do that. Okay, check. That's not. Yeah, what are giblets? Ew. You just find them and throw them out? Yeah. I'm not going to give everybody salmonella, Mom. Yes, I have olive oil. Salt, pepper, yes. That's it? That's all you have to do? That's so easy. <laughs> Any moron could make a turkey. That is so easy. That's amazing. I didn't... Defrost it? I didn't know you were supposed to defrost it. I, well, I have 14 people coming at 6 o'clock. Mom, what am I going to do? I didn't know you have to defrost the turkey before you cook it. Maybe if you hadn't been so controlling and you let me in the kitchen every once in a while when I was a kid, and I would know by the time that I'm an adult that you need to defrost the turkey before you cook it. Yes. What? That's why you'd never let me in the kitchen? Because you were pretending to make a turkey? But, Mom, if you know how to make a turkey, why wouldn't you just make it? I guess it is easier. You're right. Nobody does know the difference. Mom, you're a genius. If I leave right now, I can make it to Whole Foods and back before Linda even gets here. I love you. I knew you'd know what to do. Mom, you're the best. Yes, yes, thank you. Goodbye, turkey. <laughs> oh, I have been there in that moment, right? Grow up eating great turkey, and then that first time on Thanksgiving, on that morning, you're like, how do you conquer the bird? Well, my name is Chris, and it's good to have uh, all of you here today, especially if you're a guest with us. Thank you for coming and checking things out. And we're in this series called It's Complicated. Why? Because when people are involved, it always is. Dating's complicated. Marriage is complicated. Parent, child, relationships, no matter the age, are complicated. Business partnerships are complicated. Employee-employer relationships are complicated. Friendships are complicated. Churches are complicated. I'm complicated, and guess what? 
you're complicated. In fact, right now, let's just seize this moment and with love and joy and a smile, why don't you turn to the person next to you, whether you know them or not, and just inform them. Uh, well, first welcome them to Renaissance if you don't know them, and then just say, hey, by the way, you're complicated. Go ahead. Embrace it. Come on. Get it out. For some of you, you've been waiting to do this a long time. Uh, you're like, yes, I love church. I just told my spouse what I've wanted to say. Remember, smile. A smile always breaks down words. But here's, here's the reality. We all just get that we're complicated. I mean, especially in moments like this where you're sitting back. Hopefully, hopefully you've had your coffee. I've had my two venties this morning. It's all good. And uh, you, know, you sit back and you're like, yeah, 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 well, we're all complicated. But usually in those tense moments of relationships, we, 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 we fail to remember how complicated all of us truly are. Last week, I talked about these eight specific lenses in which we kind of look through uh, to see this world, to interact with this world, is how we perceive this world. And these are just eight of, of, of numerous lenses, but uh, we looked at gender and culture and childhood and personality and life events, both positive and, and pretty dark life events, our belief system and sin, and that these lenses is just how we interact and see this world. And for all of us here, we all see this world in a different way, in a very unique way. It's not a good or bad situation. It's just a fact. And we view each other through this set of lenses. We looked at uh, a part of the creation story last week, uh, a little bit of Genesis 2 into Genesis 3. And God uh, himself planted the garden, this perfect place for man and woman, for Adam and Eve. And it says in Genesis 2 that he placed Adam and Eve, and that word place literally means so he could have this relationship with them in the garden. And the Bible says that he told them that they could consume anything and everything in the garden, that they could eat until they were content. Why? Because God is a generous God. It's one of those storylines throughout the Bible, how generous God is. And he set up one simple rule, just one rule. Right? I, I get that there's times where I, I read the Bible and it just feels like it's so complicated because there's so many rules. I'm like, God, I just can't, I could, could never live up to all these rules. And then you think back to the very beginning when there was just two people and one rule. And guess what? Their relationships were complicated and they couldn't even follow one rule. One. And God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent started whispering. Eve started listening, and before you know it, this happened. Genesis chapter 3. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It goes on. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so many times, uh, if this is your first time ever reading those words, interacting with those words, or if maybe you've grown up in the church and you've heard this story uh, countless times, it's easy to kind of get focused on maybe that naked word, right? You're like, oh, they're naked. But what really happened in that one moment wasn't so much about them being naked. It was when they consumed the fruit. That's what the Bible calls sin. And all sin is, is looking at God and saying, God, I know your plans, but I'm going to do it my own way. 
God, I know what you want from me, but I think my way is better than your way. God, I know the guardrails you have set up for me, but I think my guardrails are better than yours. God, I know who you are, but I'm going to choose to turn from you and go my own way. That's all sin is. And that's what Adam and Eve did. God, we know this one tree. And you said, don't eat from this one tree. And that you're a generous God. And you said, we can consume from any other tree in the entire garden, not this one. But we think our way is better than your way. We think our plan is better than your plan. And they set God aside and they decided to do it their own way. Sin. And in that moment, it fractured the universe to the core. We we, got to realize the gravity of this moment. God's perfect creation, sin fractured it. The rhythm in which God created the universe to function in was thrown off rhythm. And we today are paying the price. Not just because of Adam and Eve's sin, but our sin as well. In that moment, when Adam and Eve sinned, they did two things. And again, it's one of those points that you could quickly just read through this story and miss. But we need to realize the gravity of what they did. When they sinned, they did two things. They hid and they blamed. Think about the gravity of those two actions. They try to hide from God, but they also try to hide from each other. They covered themselves. Before that moment, they were naked and unashamed. There's no barrier in between them. But in that moment, they started putting barriers in between them. And relationally, guess what, what we all do? We hide and we blame. We hide from uh, confrontation. We hide uh, 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 through our pride. We hide through our selfishness. We hide by gossiping. We hide by talking about people and putting people down. We hide in so many different ways, and then we blame. I mean, all you have to do is pick up a, a, a newspaper, read about another politician, right? They hide, 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 and when they can't hide any longer, they start blaming someone or something for their actions, and we all do it. And relationally, as God had created us to be relational beings, what happens is this pane of glass that we all look through this world, it, it looks now like this. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in the city, he once made this comment that we all are the sum of our relationships. It was such a simple but profound statement, which is so true. All of us are. And what's hard is we all have a picture that kind of looks like this. Monday night, Kim and I were putting our girls to bed. We have a seven-year-old and an almost 11-year-old. And we have these nightly routines that we always do. Uh, it's just one of those commitments, you know, that we, we have made together as husband and wife, but also with our kids that we're just going to, there's this moment to put them to bed. And so we're going through this nightly routine. I put Claire, my youngest, to bed. I make my way into Kiara's room and, you know, put her to bed. And Kim and I kind of retire back into our room. And uh, we're just talking 
And next thing I knew it, Claire, my youngest, was standing in our doorway. And I looked around. I'm like, Claire, what are you doing? And with this burst of emotional intensity that I had not really seen from her before, she screams at me, you like Kiki better than me. Tears stream down her face. She runs back in her room, and I'm left there. I mean, it's just classic dad moment. Huh? Like, I'm, I, I look over at Kim, like, for help, advice. I'm, honey, and she goes, I don't know. What did you do now? I'm like, I don't know what I did. Like, I was just, she goes, you better go fix it. I'm like, okay. Like, so I'm, like, going into a war zone. I, I walk into Claire's room. She's on her bed, and she's heaving. She's bawling. She's so upset. She has this uh, Disney, uh, Disney princess book laying over her head, right? And she's just sobbing. I'm like, ah, let's remove the book. I'm trying to calm her down. I'm trying to find out what's going on, and she wants nothing to do with me, nothing to do with me. I'm like, what is going on? Well, I'm very persistent and very stubborn. And I just wasn't going to leave until, you know, I could figure this out. And um, finally got her calmed down. I go, Claire, what did I do? Honey, I'm sorry. She goes, Daddy, you didn't pray with me. You see, we have this routine we do. And both girls, there's similarities and, and, and vast differences. But one of the things I always do with Claire every night, and it's a thing that my wife loves. She might differ with that statement, but she loves. Uh, I, Claire and I, we love to, like, like, fight, like Taekwondo kicking thing. It's just her and I. It's a thing we do, and she can kick. I tell you, I mean, she can kick. And so we just roughhouse. And my wife's always saying, hey, honey, our goal is to calm our kids down before bed, not amp them up. I'm like, what? Hey, it's all good. So Claire and I just go at it. And that night, it was intense. I mean, I'm picking her up. I'm tossing her on the bed. It's a thing, right? And, uh, and so we get into it. And then, uh, uh, then I do something else with both my girls. I've done it since uh, uh, before I could even re remember starting. I mean, since they were smallest. I, I point to their chest. And I say, you're beautiful inside, ups, upside, upside down, inside, outside, upside down. And I kind of draw this circle around their chest. And I reach down to their toes. I go from your tiny little toes. And then I touch their nose, your precious little nose. It's just one of those daddy things where I'm just like, I want my girls to know that they're precious, not, not just on the outside, but who they are on the inside. So I do that with both girls, and then we pray. Well, that night, I mean, WWF in Claire's room was just awesome. Like, we were just in it. And so by the time I threw her in bed and did the, the nose-toes thing, right, it was just like, and I kissed her on the forehead, and I walked out. Just totally forgot. But this is what happened with Claire. She laid in bed, and she heard me walk into Key's room. And she heard me cuddle up against Key because Kier's just already tucked in. She's ready to go to bed, and I kind of cuddle up next to her, and we have a little conversation, and she hears me do the, you're beautiful inside, outside, upside down from your tiny little toes, your precious little nose. And then she hears me pray with Kiera. And she lays in her bed and she goes, why didn't daddy pray with me? Why did daddy pray with Kiki and not me? Why does daddy love Kiki more than me? And then the seven-year-old little mind, she starts connecting all these dots and this fracture happens 
you think about the countless moments like this for all of us individually that we have. Some that we can recall in vivid detail. And some that we have quickly forgotten, but they're still there. They're still there. A guy named John Walker who was instrumental, instrumental in helping me through a pretty intense season of life uh, once said these words, while God is in the heart-shaping business so much more than God has shaped your heart. Think about that. See, again, we, we spend so much time on our outward appearance. That's why we as parents, if you're a parent in this room, I mean, especially on church Sunday morning, your kids could be screaming at home. You could be screaming at your kids at home. You could place them screaming in your car, and you could drive to Renaissance while they're screaming. And right before you, you uh, open that door, you look at them, and you say, we're at church. Stop screaming. And then y'all walk in with smiles. Oh, we're at church. Right? We've all been there. Maybe that was you this morning. You're like, yeah, guilty. How did, did you see me? Right? We're all so consumed with the outward persona, how people see us on the outside. And guess what? God really doesn't care about our outward persona. He cares about what's going on on the inside in our heart. Because here's what God knows. Whatever is going on on the inside of you will always make its way out in some way. Always does. And God wants to reform and reshape our heart into his image. But God also knows that so many other people and moments are fighting against him. It shapes our heart. And one thing that I love about being called to be a, a, a pastor, but it's also, there's a two, two-sided coin to this thought. It's one thing I love about it, and it's what also makes it the most difficult is my entire job is about people. And here's what I know. Hurting people hurt people. And all of us, to some degree, are hurting. And again, on one side, is what I love about my job is I get to walk beside people and try to help heal, try to help them work through past and for them to realize who God is and what God can do within their heart. On the flip side, I deal with hurting people that like to hurt people. And in this in its complicated series, what I want from all of you, including myself, so easy to look at everyone else and what they need to do to fix them but in all reality we can't fix anyone all we can do is focus on ourselves and Jesus in this great moment it's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 he's going to get right into this issue about relationships and what happens when there's a fractured relationship and how to deal with it. But he's going to start out in an interesting way. If, if you have like an NIV Bible, uh, the title on this section says murder. <laughs> and you kind of go, 
wow, there, there's a way to set some tension into this subject matter. And I think about just the thousands of people that were sitting around Jesus as he sat on this hillside and he's just started teaching them and he's bouncing from subject to subject to subject and he's just teaching and they're leaning in. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about murder and killing people. And I wonder if everyone just comes like, what? what? And then he's going to tie it right back into our relational context. He said, you have heard that it was said to people long ago. Now, I love these moments in the Bible, because for you, you might struggle with the Bible, because you're like, man, how in the world can this ancient document mean anything to me? The New Testament was written 2,000 years ago, and you might just go, well, yeah, it's so long ago. Guess what? Jesus is going to quote uh, their only Bible that they had at that point, and he's going to quote, uh, you shall not murder, that was written about 15, 1,600 years before him. It's the same issue. It's the same uh, struggle for people. It's like, oh, it was so long ago. And Jesus was pulling people in saying, hey, I know you know these words. And it was so long ago that Moses said these words. But he's going to pull them in. And he says, you shall not murder, which is one of the Ten Commandments. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. It's no different today than it was back then. You kill someone. I'm not talking in an act of self-defense to protect yourself or your family, but, you know, out of evil and anger and vengeance, you kill someone, you're subject to judgment. And I think at that, that point, everyone was kind of leaning in, going, yeah, we agree with that, and yeah, that's a great thing, it's helping society thrive, and, and yeah, Jesus, we get it. But then he's going to turn the corner, and this is what he says, but I tell you, and there's these moments where Jesus uses this line, but I tell you, and it might feel like, well, is Jesus changing the law? Is Jesus adding something to the law? What's Jesus doing in this moment? I, I, I think through it this way. Uh, if you've ever raised a two-year-old, you know that two-year-old, uh, as they start talking a lot, uh, they, they discover uh, that candy is a great thing, and so they start asking for candy a lot. I want candy, I want candy, I want candy. And as a parent, you just simply say, no, no. I want candy, no. Then something happens around age three or four. They, they learn another word, why. Oh, that's a great word. Over and over and over again, why, why, why? And so they come to you and they say, hey, I want candy. And you say, well, no. And then they go, why? And you're like, oh, I have to give them a reason. Why? Well, it's breakfast. You don't eat candy for breakfast. Why? It's almost bedtime. Why? Well, you, you had dessert. But then they get older. And now the uh, simple answers to their why questions, it's not good enough. So you start talking about health and food. And well, once you eat fruit, fruit's better than refined sugar. What's refined sugar? Let me tell you what refined sugar is, right? Now you're having this nutritional conversation with your, 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 your kids. Could you imagine if you had that conversation with a two-year-old? Two-year-old, hey, I want candy. No, I'm sorry, uh, Johnny, because uh, candy has refined sugar in it, right? That two-year-old would just stare at you going, huh? That makes no sense. What, God, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's revealing, not adding to the law, not 
changing law, he's revealing this much deeper uh, issue that really is underlying this whole murder thought. You see, murder is this outward action. And here Jesus is getting back into the heart. It's like because murder doesn't start on the outside. It starts with anger on the inside. And Jesus cares so much about who you are on the inside and the condition of your heart. Because he knows the condition of your heart always produces the actions that you see on the outside. Always does. Because I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He goes on. He goes, again, any, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. That word raka is literally, uh, you can maybe equate it to like a, a string of, of four-letter words that you should never say in a fit of anger as you are yelling and screaming at someone. It's this word of power and position that you are using your words to crush someone verbally. It's uh, another connotation is empty-headed. They would have treated this word in a, a very offensive type of way. And Jesus said, hey, when you say raka, when you power up over someone in a fit of anger and rage, guess what? You're subject to the court. The court was the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council. And he said, you're subject to them. You, you have to give an account for your words. But he takes it another step further. He says, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Think about the gravity of that statement. Man, if you say you fool, if you slander someone, if you uh, talk down on someone, if you belittle someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell? What Jesus, Jesus understands is what goes on inside of you, anger, it's just so deeply going to fracture every relationship around you. And if you don't get control of your thoughts and your emotions inside of you, it's going to devastate everyone around you. Why? Because hurting people hurt people. And then Jesus, without missing a beat, because he just gets that we're human. Remember, one of those lenses we all see through is sin. He's not going to say, well, if you do this, he's just going to assume, hey, there's going to be moments that someone's going to hurt you or you're going to hurt someone. This is just going to happen because we live in this sinful world and we're sinners. So he goes uh, straight to a solution. And here's the solution. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Now, that whole idea of leaving something at the altar, just translate it to you're sitting in church. You're at church. You're getting ready to worship God. You're getting ready to learn more about God. You're in this moment. And all of a sudden, you remember that someone has something against you. Maybe you've done something to create that. Maybe they've done something against you. Maybe they know that or they don't know. It doesn't matter the specifics. You just know that there's relational tension. That's what Jesus says. Leave. So right now we're going to end church and you may leave and go find someone. 
Go. All of us could right now, couldn't we? All of us, right? There's a name right now in your head going, oh, man, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of tension. You know what Jesus is doing? He's putting a priority list in order. Yes, worshiping God is a priority. But you know what God wants? Your heart to be in the right place. And how in the world can you come and worship God when you have anger and hurt and division in your heart? And Jesus is like, yeah, worship God. Important. But God would rather you go fix this issue and then come back. So he goes, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. That word reconciled means to create peace. And what's cool is there's this connotation with this uh, ancient Greek word for reconciled that literally means that there's an exchange that happens. So many times, I, I don't know for you, but I come into conversations uh, trying to fix tension, fix fractured relationships, and my gut response is I want to win the argument. It's just honest. I'm not saying I act on that. I'm just saying what my humanness wants to do. And that whole idea of reconciliation is about this exchange that happens. Jesus gives us a great strategy, if you want to put it that way, to deal with fractured relationships. It's found in Matthew chapter 18. I just encourage you uh, later today to go and read Matthew chapter 18. But I'm going to walk you through it uh, visually because I think it's going to help give you the gravity but a great pathway to deal with fractured relationships. Here's what Matthew 18 says. Uh, there's two people and something happens. Maybe uh, uh, the blue circle person uh, uh, says something behind the red circle person's back. Who knows what it is? You can... You can fill in uh, the analogy of the story with any specifics you want, but their relationships have been fractured. And this is what happens. Remember, go back to the, the garden and what happened with Adam and Eve. We hide and we blame. We hide and we blame. So what usually happens in this moment, someone hurts you, it looks like this. We surround ourselves with all these other people, not even involved in the situation. We tell all these people how this person has hurt us and how this person, what this person has said and what this person has done and they can't believe that this person, right? And we surround and we hide and we blame. We've all had this happen to us. All of us have had this happen. And you find yourself on the outside of the circle going, well, Hey, uh, what about, come to me, come to me. I, I'm sorry, I didn't know. I, but yet, guess what we do? We all do this as well. And you know what this does relationally? It fractures it more and fractures it more. Creates more of a separation. Creates more hurt. Creates more anger. And what Jesus his strategy is so simple and so intuitive, but so difficult to do. You know what Jesus says? Do this. 
When you notice the arrow pointing both ways, remember the word reconciliation means that there's an exchange that happens where you sit down with that person. You don't go to everyone else and talk about that person to everyone else. You go seek out that person that has hurt you. You go seek out that person that has offended you. You go to that person and sit down with them knee to knee, eye to eye, and have a conversation. And your goal isn't to win. Your goal is to reconcile. That's difficult, isn't it? When was the last time someone offended you and you went straight to them compared to the times where you surround yourself with everyone else and you slander that other person? You see, when we surround ourselves with everyone else and we talk about that other person, guess what we're doing? We're sinning. That's what we're doing. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Chris, I, I want to get advice from someone. I hear this in the church world a lot. Well, I went to that person to get advice. Here's a couple simple guardrails I always put up in place. One, I will ask the person, well, do I really need to know their name? Because I can give a lot of advice without knowing a person's name. And every once in a while, maybe the name, because it will help with the situation, needs to be said. Guess what? My commitment to that person that comes to me and is seeking advice, you know what my commitment is? I say to them, you better sit down with them. If you don't sit down with them, you're going to deal with me. Because the goal in mentoring, the goal of giving advice isn't gossip, isn't slander. It's to help that person sit down and reconcile a relationship. But what I have found out in my ministry years, or just life, most advice is gossip and slander and it's sin. And then Jesus goes on and says, okay, you sit down and you try to and it doesn't work out. Uh, it says bring one or two other people into the conversation. And notice though, I, I put this person in between. I didn't put them on this side because that's what we want to do. We want to bring people to argue our case. No, you want to find people with the goal to reconcile the relationship. And Jesus says sometimes, sometimes, you will need to bring someone in. Sometimes you'll need that outside voice. Sometimes you'll need someone to help you guys come together and create peace between you. If you do, do that. But make sure that that person is committed to this goal, this end. And then Jesus takes it one more step and he goes, if that still doesn't work, bring it in front of the church. Now take a deep breath. We're never going to have a Sunday morning where we sit people on the stage, right? Could you imagine? Welcome to Renaissance. And today is Reconciliation Sunday, right? That would just be horrible. You know, Jesus, again, within his teaching of context, you know, churches, you know, look different. And the culture was different. You know, here at Renaissance, you know what we'd do? We'd sit down with a group of spiritual leaders and have that conversation. You know what? I've never had to take it to this third step. I've had to take it to the second step where, where uh, I've been part of a group of people trying to bring people together. But usually at that point, people are wanting to come together. But see, that's how we deal with relational tension. And all of you, including myself. 
God wants you to be part of his church. God wants you to worship him. God wants you to worship him. But he wants a heart that's being healed. And you need to go take care of a relationship first. So there's three things before I come into any conversation like this that I do. And uh, I'm sure you could add to this list, but these are the three things I always do when I come into a Matthew 18 conversation. One is I pray. And you know what I pray for? I don't pray that the other person will see it my way. That's not reconciliation. That's not an exchange. You know what I pray for? I pray very specifically that, God, I, I pray that my pride Pride always kills reconciliation. When you go in and you're going to get your point across and you're going to drive your point into their forehead and you're going to win, as soon as you start thinking that way, pride takes over and you will never exchange. You will never reconcile. I always go into these conversations praying, God, please keep my pride down. God, please help my ego to stay away. God, please help me to hear your voice. God, please, man, don't let my humanness mess this up. I tell you, when you start with prayer, it's amazing what happens to your heart. Second thing I do is I seek to understand. Why does this person feel this way? What's going on in their world? You know, a while back I had a great Matthew 18 conversation with someone, and uh, the first 30 minutes of the conversation was me just asking questions about their personal life. What's going on here? What's going on? I, it's, it's where I start. It's about understanding who this person is and what's going on inside of them. We'll get to an issue later, but I, I care more about who that person is in that moment, honestly, than the issue. We'll get to that issue. But when you come and you approach a Matthew 18 conversation to understand someone, it's amazing what the Holy Spirit does in that moment. And the last thing is to reconcile. create peace and to create peace an exchange happens on both sides what I know for some of you in this room today you have some pretty deep relational fractures in your heart right now maybe it goes all the way back to uh, childhood maybe it's a, a, a former marriage maybe who knows what that might be the specifics you do and there's times where uh, God wants to heal your heart, but there's times where you need maybe an outside person to help in that healing process. Uh, I quickly talked about John Walker. I mean, he was insurmountable to me in a season of life. And I tell you, between God and him, uh, saved my marriage, saved uh, me as a husband, as a, a dad, as a pastor. And so uh, I get what it, what, what it feels like to need someone to help in that healing process and here at renaissance we have an amazing counseling center and uh actually uh, so many people are using our, our counselor that we've had to add a day or two which is great seriously i celebrate that because um, that means people are working through their hurts and their pains and so uh if you need counseling uh, you can connect with me after service you can email us at cares at renaissancechurch.org but uh take a step to start that healing process there's something else. Uh, Vanessa talked about it earlier. It's called the project. 
And sometimes it's just about connecting with people. It really is. And uh, the project kicks off here in a, a few weeks. After service today, you can go out into our cafe area. Clay's there, uh, and he will help you get signed up for the project. I sat through the last one, and it was amazing uh, because I was able to hear people's stories and where they have come from. I was able to share my story, and, and it just takes this church thing where everyone comes in and sits in rows, and it gets you around a, a table, around circles, where you start interacting with each other. And I tell you, God does powerful things in those moments. And so if, if you uh, haven't gone through the project, maybe it's the first time you're hearing about it, Maybe you're sitting there going, I just don't know about that. Just sign up. Experience it. It's powerful. And it will help you take steps spiritually, but also relationally. There's one more piece that I, I didn't get to today on purpose. And you see, we all are looking through this lens right now. To what degree are your fractured relationships? Only you know. But we all have them. And here's the thing. The Bible's clear about. And this is one of those those pieces that it it truly comes from God. It's going to be God's power and God's strength. The Holy Spirit moving within your heart. But there's one more piece that's critical to reconciliation. Because God truly wants us to see the world like he does. He really does. And it's possible, it is possible for you to start uh, healing those fractured relationships, fixing those fractured relationships. But it's going to take this one critical piece that comes in the reconciliation process. And next week we're going to talk about it. We're going to spend the whole Sunday morning about it. And truly, God says, hey, you put this one thing into your, your, your relational mix. If you're committed to this one thing, you can start seeing like I see. So my challenge for you is to come back next week. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for today. Lord, I pray that uh, one-on-one conversations happen. I really do. I pray that bold, bold uh, courage is extended to have Matthew 18 conversations. Because it's in those conversations that we stop hiding and we stop blaming and peace is created. that there's an exchange that happens. So, Lord, Lord, I pray for that. In your name I pray, amen. God bless. Have an amazing week.